Good morning, Memorial. Let us pray now for the reading of the preaching of God's holy word. Guide us, O God, by your word, and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. An Old Testament reading taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 3 through 8, the word of the Lord. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted to, on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Marilyn, thank you. We're going to look at one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament. It is one of the passages that pretty much any non-Christian, unchurched person would be familiar uh, with. Uh, It's the passage in which Jesus clears the temple and then totally ices a poor, helpless fig tree. Uh, At least the first half of that is very well-known. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 22 uh, in your Pew Bible. Uh, This is page 1532 if you want to follow along there. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves, 
And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did this fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What's going on here? Why is Jesus so bent out of shape when he gets into the temple courts? He sees certainly buying and selling going on. He sees money changers, temples. He sees people doing all the things you might expect to be doing outside of any ancient temple where sacrifices were offered, where you had to buy animals and trade your money in order to buy animals so that you could go in and have the priest sacrifice for them in order to atone for your sins. It's a perfectly normal sight, except not in this temple. What got Jesus so bent out of shape wasn't buying or selling or money or coinage or any of that, but what he saw there in that place, because of where it was, was a people who had divorced their worship from the missional heart of God. You see, where was the location of that market? We know from first century sources that it was earlier in that century that in order to uh, make it easier to offer sacrifices, they would convert one of what they considered the less essential courtyards of the, of the temple of the Lord into a market so that you could buy and sell your goods right there and not have to do it way down at the bottom of the hill. We're talking about the temple on top of Mount Zion was called a Mount Zion because it was way uphill and having to drag, you know, three goats and two turtle doves up Mount Zion in order to get to the top to offer them to the Lord as sacrifices was burdensome and it was far easier just to throw the market right in the temple itself. And so they picked what they considered the least important chamber of the temple of the Lord. It was what was called the court of the Gentiles. God had said in the Old Testament My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And it was here in this court of the Gentiles that they had set up shop. The court of the Gentiles was the outer court of the temple of Yahweh. It was the only place where an unbeliever could pray to the Lord. It was the only place where somebody who was in the process of coming to faith but had not yet become Jewish, had not yet been circumcised, had not yet had his sons circumcised, but they could nevertheless go into this court set apart by God for them, saying, if you are not yet my follower, if you are not yet part of my family, I want you to come and worship me and find life in me, and this court of the Gentiles shall be the place where my house will be a house of prayer for all who are far off, for the foreigner, for the alien, for the stranger, for the eunuch, for all those who might otherwise not approach me. I make this place a place so that the temple of the Lord will be a temple in which all people might find life. Any Jew could have finished Jesus' quote from Isaiah 56 verse 7 when Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer. They would have been able to finish what he said. A house of prayer for whom? For all nations. 
for all the goyim, for all the peoples of the earth, for all those who are not yet Jews, they could in this place come and worship the Lord because God's priority was that the goyim, those who aren't yet in, would find a place in his temple to meet him and to know him. You see, we like to categorize people, in or out, believer or unbeliever, Christian or not a Christian, walking with the Lord totally sold out to Jesus or walking in the flesh away from God. And God had other categories. God had an in-between space. And what angered Jesus was seeing the church forcing people to make a decision before it was their time, forcing people to be in or out when a will of God was that very many people would be in process and that there would be in the house of God a great number who aren't yet ready to be circumcised then, aren't yet ready to come to the Lord's table now, but who are nevertheless a part of the community and the house of God and extended members of his family a part of a community whose center of gravity was those who know and walk in his truth. Philip Yancey tells a story of a friend of his named George. He says this, he said, For years, George ran a bookstore, more out of a desire to stay abreast of new books than from any profit motive, a good thing, since his bookstore rarely made money and eventually folded. If a customer piqued his curiosity, George would issue an invitation down the block to the Greasy Spoon Diner where he liked to hold court. He spent much of every day there drinking endless cups of coffee and chain-smoking in those days when restaurants allowed you to smoke inside. None of us really scolded George about his addiction to caffeine or his addiction to tobacco because we knew they deterred him from a far worse addiction, alcohol. Because a doctor had warned George that one more alcoholic binge would likely kill him. So George threw an annual party to celebrate each new year of sobriety. George broke the mold, reared a Mennonite pacifist on a farm in Kansas. He rebelled by joining the army and serving in Vietnam. And then he settled in the big city of Chicago bisexual. He had liaisons, both male and female, yet my chain-smoking bisexual alcoholic friend George, who owned the bookstore, knew as much theology as a seminary professor. He told me he had made the first tentative steps back to God by acknowledging a higher power when he was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then one day, while surfing the channels on cable television, he inexplicably stopped at a religious program A choir was singing the invitation hymn, Just As I Am. George put down the remote control and he listened to the first verse and then he listened to the second, Just As I Am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. George watched as people came forward, edging sideways through the narrow rows of seats and weaving their way down front when counselors greeted them and guided them aside for prayer. It was a familiar sight to George, a throwback to his childhood, but for some reason, he wanted to keep watching. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. George said this, 
He said, that night I fathomed for the first time the truth that God loves me just as I am. You see, everyone else loves me with strings attached. I disappoint my family because I never realized my potential in school, in career, in all the choices and all the relationships that I've had. I disappoint my friends and my doctors in the way I treat my health and with the cigarettes and the drinking and the poor diet. He says, I'm poor, I'm fat, I'm ugly, and I'm old. Only God can love me just as I am. A guy like George, how many in the churches would want to categorize him? He's in, no, he's out. No, he's in, no, he's out. Maybe he's in. Maybe he's out. But maybe God wants there to be a place for people who aren't sure for people who don't know that they're ready to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. A place, a court of the Gentiles. You see, we draw a clear line in every worship service when we come to this table. But the will of Jesus is that the community of church would be bigger. There would be many who are finding that they can belong to this community before they necessarily even believe a house of prayer for all the goyim, for all the nations of the earth, for all the peoples, for all those who are far off, for the unbeliever, for the pagan, where they can come and approach the God of Abraham. Jesus stepped into the temple courts, into the court of the Gentiles, and he saw it turned into a busy market with animals everywhere and loud money changers and crowds doing business and no place for the unbeliever in process. See, mission, the mission of God had always been tied to the worship of God. Ever since God called Abraham, some Christians in their worship wars love to pit worship against mission. You spend a nickel on mission, well, worship matters. You spend a nickel on worship, now it should all go to the mission field. In the heart of Jesus, these are two sides of the same coin, and they always have been. Why did God call Abraham to come to be his people, to worship him so that the name of the Lord would be praised and so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him? It was mission. It was worship. From the very beginning, mission at the heart of God for worship. You look at the Psalms. We've read some of them today. This was the Psalter, the hymnal of ancient Israel. What kind of songs were they worshiping in the temple? What kind of songs were they singing in their synagogues on this Sabbath day? Clap your hands, all you Goyim, all you nations, all you unbelievers, come and join us in worshiping the Lord of hosts. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs and know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his gates, his courts with praise. It was always a part of the worship of God that the worship of God was calling the nations in. I think of Isaiah 2, his vision that that in the coming age, the word would go out from Jerusalem and all the nations of the earth would come and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God, the Jewish God, and that all the nations would know him and be saved by him and they'd be changed and they'd beat their swords into plowshares. They wouldn't fight anymore because they would all know him. I think of the burden for the alien and the stranger in the Old Testament, that they would know the Lord and be loved and treated as equals. Habakkuk, who spoke of a day when the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mission was always a part 
of God's heart for worship. And God had made this place for them here in the temple courts, always assuming that there would be many in process who would need a safe place and that his temple would have to be a safe place wherever you've been, wherever you come from, whatever you've believed, whatever you've disbelieved, whatever wreck you've left behind you, whatever self-righteousness you're coming from, whatever shame you're carrying with you, if you don't believe Jesus right now, but you are here, Jesus himself is saying, this is my court of the Gentiles. Yes, this is my church, but this is the court of the Gentiles. This is where I gather you. It was that in the New Testament. Remember in 1 Corinthians, when Paul was dealing with spiritual gifts and the Christians were trying to figure out, okay, if God gives me the ability to speak in in another language, you know, speaking in tongues and foreign languages, uh, whatever that was, he says, you know, should you do that in corporate worship? And Paul says, don't do it unless you've got a translator. Why not? He says, because otherwise, the non-believer who's there is going to think y'all are crazy. Well, worship is for Christians, Greg. Well, that's not what he says. He's assuming the non-Christian is there. He's assuming that the community of the church is bigger than those who have been baptized and believe. He's assuming that there's a place in the temple of the Lord for the non-Christian who is in process. And how we worship, we're supposed to take them into consideration. The early church got this. In the early church there was a a category of people. They were called catechumens. It means hearers. And the catechumens, the catechumen, it were all those people who were um, outwardly involved in the life of the church. They would come to church services. They would sit for the sermon. They would worship God. They were not yet ready to be baptized. They were not yet ready to give their life to Jesus. They were not yet ready to say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. But they were learning they were growing. And in fact, you read the sermons of, of you know, John Chrysostom uh, in the East. And, uh, and it's interesting because in his church, they actually had an intermission in which all the catechumens got up and left after the sermon. It's kind of weird. We're not going to do that. We just kind of mention at the table, don't do anything that's not true to where you are at this point in your spiritual journey. You've heard that before. But uh, you, it's interesting because he would say, you know, after the sermon, he'd say, now away with the catechumens, away with the catechumens, away with the catechumens. And half the church would get up and leave. Because the assumption was that the temple of the Lord has a court of the Gentiles. And that there are a whole lot of people, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. I mean, we just met with a, 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 a man this morning uh, who shared his faith in Christ. He's been coming for two years. When he came, first time he took the new members class, he told everybody, I'm not a Christian, I'm just curious. Second time he took it, he was a little bit further along, and now he's ready to be baptized and ready to join this church. It's a normal part of Christianity, and it's been that way since the days of Abraham. So how do we lose sight of this? If the mission of God to save all the nations is so central to God's heart for worship, and it's such a loss that we divorce worship from the missional heart of God, that heart that wants everybody to come to him and have life and be healed. How is it that we miss this? We miss it because we make worship all about ourselves. It's something we instinctively do. It's what they were doing. They were simply trying to make a logical and rational choice to how, how you're going to allow the maximum number of worshipers to have the most efficient worship experience. 
you know, let's just move the market here. It's going to be so much easier. You're going to have greater attendance because more people are going to be able to come because it's going to be easier for them. It's not going to be so hard. They're going to be able to efficiently process their sacrificial transaction, have their worship units processed, get right with God, feel good about themselves, and go home. Right? It makes sense. Except that God wanted a place for the unbeliever in his temple. And it angered Jesus that his people were so concerned about efficiency and worship. They were looking at their clocks and saying, it's 1201, Greg, we need to stop right now. It's like, no, that's not in his heart. It's not about you. Worship is not about me. Worship is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about the heart of God. And we lose sight of that. When we make worship into this consumer affair in which we're processing a certain number of worship units so that we can feel good like we're close to God, that's what they were doing at the temple. And so they lost sight of the heart of God. And we do that today. How often do we view worship experiences as this sort of thing that I need to consume these worship units. And when I've consumed enough worship units, I feel close enough to God and I feel like, like he's blessing me. And so then I can go home and I can live my life. And then when I get kind of low, I need to consume more worship units because it's all ultimately about me as a religious consumer looking for the most efficient way to get the maximum experience from the best processed worship units. And it's not. It's about God. Francis Schaeffer said that personal peace and affluence had become the God of Bible-believing Christians in America. Jack Miller lamented the way church had become a religious cushion there to make people feel good and spiritual instead of an outward-faced people in the mission of God, following Jesus with self-sacrificial faith and discipleship. Because it's about God. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. And you know, when a church gets that, church starts to change. You know, there's a difference when you walk into church late. In a typical church in America, you walk in 20 minutes late, everybody's eyeing you, looking back at you. You're trying not to make any noise, but everybody's kind of giving you the look. You walk into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting late, and they stop the meeting. And everybody says hi. And somebody comes up to you and gives you a hug. Because they all know that the fact that you got there late means you almost didn't make it. And they're fighting for your soul. Friends, when Jesus comes to his church, when he clears his temple and opens back up the court of the Gentiles, then our focus gets off ourselves as religious consumers trying to consume my religious unit and instead gets on Jesus. What he's doing in me, what he's doing in the person across the pew, what he's doing in my kids, and what he's doing through us in other people because it's about him and the power of his gospel. It's all about the missional heart of God. So where is there hope for us as worshipers who are fallen and broken and damaged religious consumers and want to be disciples of Jesus? Where is there hope? The hope here is not in what we do. The hope here is in what Jesus did. Because Jesus, in clearing the temple, was saying that he has an eternal, unending, and absolutely binding commitment to carve out a place in his church 
for everyone who is in process, everyone who is willing, those who don't yet believe in him, but are exploring, are asking, are whispering, God, are you there? Is this real? Do I follow you? What do I do? What does this look like? Is this all make-believe or is it the truth? Jesus is saying, I have a commitment to make a safe place for sinners, whether they believe or not, a safe place, a community of love where they can approach me and learn from me and come to me and be changed. And there's hope because of what Jesus does to that fig tree. It's a symbolic action. If you don't know the geography, you miss the point says at the end of the day, having cleared out the temple, Jesus went on the road to Bethany where he spent the night. Bethany is just outside the city to the east, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And then on the, in the morning on the way back, he's coming back into Jerusalem, crossing the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is that mountain straight across from the city of Jerusalem the, with the valley of the Kinnom Valley between it. And so if you're on the Mount of Olives, it's like you're way up here. And, and Mount, Mount, uh, you know, the, the Lord's temple on Mount Zion is right over there where the lectern is. And you can see it. There's a big valley between you. And he sees the gleaming glory of the temple of the Lord high atop that mountain, glistening bright in its white marble and granite and all the gold that went into it. This magnificent feat of architecture by King Herod himself with all its courts around it. And it looks like the city of God. It looks like the temple of the Lord. It looks like the place where surely God dwells. And Jesus is looking at it and he's looking at this fig tree, which at that time of year should have some early ripening fruit. And it's a symbolic action. Because when he looks at the temple on closer inspection, what should have been the presence of God was the absence of God because they had forgot the missional heart of God in worship. And he looks at the fig tree that should be bearing fruit. It should be coming alive. It should be able to nurture someone with its fruit. And it's barren and it's empty. And he curses it. He says, may you never bear fruit again. And he turns to his disciples and he says, you see this mountain. If you have any faith at all, you believe me, you can say to that mountain of self-righteous religion, that mountain of heartless worship, that mountain of false worship, consumer worship, that's all about me consuming my units without regard to the heart of God for the lost, for the weak, for the lowly. You can say to all that false religion, go be cast into the sea and God, your father, will end it and destroy it completely. Friends, it's the power of the gospel to undo religion, the power of the gospel to get rid of all of our self-righteousness, all of our consumerism, all of our self-focus, and to get us reconnected with the missional heart of God. Jesus is saying, you have a role in this. What you say to God, asking him to do it, he will do it. He will unleash his gospel, and he will cast human religion with all of its moralism and all of its outward fakery, he'll cast it into the sea and replace it instead with the power of the gospel calling his people to himself. Jesus is calling. It's the welcome of Jesus. That's our hope. You just look at the people that Jesus is welcoming in this passage. He's welcoming Gentiles, non-believers. That was their core to the Gentiles early in the passage. 
And you look further in verse 14, he's welcoming and embracing the, the blind, people who can't see. And they're like, Lord, I just want to see. And he embraces them. And the lame, people who can't even walk on their own, they have to have somebody pick them up and carry them. They're so helpless and they know they're helpless. And Jesus is there for them. And then verse 15, verse 16, all the little kids, all the children, and Jesus is there loving them. They didn't value children. Children were inefficient work units in the first century. Yet all these people that would have been neglected by the temple of the Lord Children, the lame, the blind, the Gentiles, those are the people Jesus is choosing. He's calling them. He's embracing them because they're people like us who know we can't fix ourselves, know that there's something lacking. We know that we're not really grown up, not spiritually, not before the Lord. We're little children, and he's embracing us and loving us because the heart of God breaks For the weak, the downcast, and the pitiful, and the unbelieving, he is their God, calling them to himself, Jesus himself becoming the temple of the Lord, and Jesus and his church becoming the court of the Gentiles, welcoming all. This is new to you, strange to you. He's calling you. Come, be a part of my people, and be willing to worship me. Philip Yancey tells a story of when he was in, when he was at a uh, conference for workers, uh, particularly people in ministries, organizations, NGOs, working with human trafficking and the victims of human trafficking, particularly human trafficking for the sex trade. And he was talking to a woman from New Zealand who told him about her work among Thai women who were trafficked to Germany. She said there were 12,000 Thai women working in the industry in Berlin alone. She tries to take care of them. She gives them music uh, CDs. She gives them flowers, small expressions of friendship and care and love. She said this, said, these women feel so degraded and alone in a strange and cold place. They have a hard time trusting anyone because most of them have been abused by their fathers, by their brothers, and then by a succession of men interested only in their bodies. She said, I offer love, I don't offer religion. But if they do express an interest in God, she says, I give them a New Testament or I give them Christian literature. She said, I've seen them in strip clubs, balancing in the midst of a pole dance in such a way that they can read their New Testament or one of my booklets as men around them ogle their bodies. Yancey says it was an image I could not easily chase from my mind. God is calling, friends. He's calling people to himself. He longs for us to open back up the court of the Gentiles that those who need him might find salvation in him. I've got a picture here. Um, Some of you know the the website, The Toast, which went offline this week. Uh, the first of this month was at least the scheduled date that it would come to an end. This is Nicole Cliff, co-founder of the American anthology human and feminist writing website, The Toast. The site uh, has been, uh, it's a bastion of feminist humor. It's been described as a humor blog for queer librarians. Um, she wrote an article just a couple months ago, published it 
called How God Messed Up My Happy Atheist Life by Nicole Cliff, May 20th, 2016. She says this. She says, I became a Christian on July 7th of 2015 after a very pleasant adult life of firm atheism. I found myself telling the story when people ask me about it, slightly tweaked for my audience, of course, When talking to non-theists, I do a lot of shrugging and crazy, right? Nothing's changed, though. When talking to other Christians, it's more obviously it's been very beautiful, and I'm utterly changed by it. But the story's gotten away a little from me in the telling. As an atheist since college, I had already mellowed a bit over the previous two or three years in the course of running a popular feminist website that publishes thoughtful pieces about religion. Like many atheists who are generally lovely moral people like my father who would refuse to enter heaven and instead wait outside with his Miles Davis LPs, I started out snarky and defensive about religion, but eventually came to think it was probably nice for people of faith to have faith. Um, I held to that even though the idea of a benign deity who created and loved us was obvious nonsense and all that awaited us beyond the grave was joyful oblivion. I know that sounds depressing, she writes, but I found the idea of life ending after death to be mildly reassuring in its finality. I had started to meet people of faith, having moved to Utah from Manhattan, and thought them frequently charming in their sweet delusion. I didn't wish to believe. I had no untapped, unanswered yearnings. All was well in the state of Denmark. And then it wasn't. There are two different starting points to my conversion, she writes, and sometimes I omit the first one because I think it gives people an answer I don't want them to have. Uh, It's a simple story. I was going through a hard time. I was worried about my child. And one time I said, be with me, into an empty room. It was embarrassing. I didn't know why I said it or to whom. I brushed it off. I moved on. The situation resolved itself. I didn't think about it again. I know how people hear that story. Oh, of course, Nicole was struggling and needed a larger framework for her life. That's part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. The second starting point is usually what I lead with. I was surfing the internet, and I came across uh, John Ortberg's uh, Christianity Today obituary for philosopher Dallas Willard. Uh, John's daughters are dear friends of mine, and I've always had a wonderful relationship with their parents who struck me as sweetly deluded in their evangelical Christian faith, and so I clicked on the article. Somebody once asked uh, Dallas if he believed in total depravity. I believe in sufficient depravity, he responded immediately. What's that? I believe that every human being is sufficiently depraved that when we get to heaven, no one's going to be able to say, I deserved this. A few minutes into reading the piece, I burst into tears. Later that day, I burst into tears again. And the next day, while brushing my teeth, while falling asleep, while in the shower, while feeding my kids, I would just burst into tears. I I should say here that I am a happy, even-keeled soul. If this were the Middle Ages, I would be in a book under the heading, The Four Humors, Sanguine Slash Phlegmatic. Therefore, it was very unsettling to suddenly feel like a boat being tossed on the waves. I wasn't sad. I wasn't frightened. I just had too many feelings. 
So I decided to buy a Dallas Willard book to read anthropologically, of course. I read his book, Hearing God. I cried. I bought Lewis Smead's book, My God and I. I cried. I bought Sarah Miles' book, Take This Bread. I cried. It was getting out of hand. You just can't go around crying all the time. At this point, I reached a crossroads. I sat myself down and I said, Okay, Nicole, you have two choices. Option one, you can stop reading books about Jesus. Option two, you could think with greater intention about why you are overwhelmed by your emotions. It occurred to me that if option two proved fruitless, I could always return to option one. And so I emailed a friend who's a Christian and I asked if we could talk about Jesus. I instantly regretted sending that email. And if humanly possible, I would have clawed it back through the internet. Technology having failed me, my message reached its recipient. She said she would be happy to talk to me about Jesus. You probably already know this, but Christians love talking about Jesus. I spent the next few days, uh, the few days before our call, feeling like an idiot, wondering what on earth I planned to ask her. So do you like Jesus? What was Jesus' deal? Why did he ice that fig tree? And now we reach the part of the story that gets a bit hand-wavy. About an hour before our call, I knew. I believed in God. Worse yet, I was a Christian. It was the opposite of being punk rock. Now, if you've been following along, you know already... I was crying constantly while thinking about Jesus because I had begun to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. But for some reason, that idea had honestly not occurred to me. But then it did, and as though it had always been true. And so when my friend called, I told her awkwardly that I wanted to have a relationship with God. And we prayed, and we giggled a bit, and cried a bit, and then she sent me a stack of Henry Nouwen books, and here we are today. And since then, I've been dunked by a pastor in the Pacific Ocean while shivering in a too-small wetsuit. I've sung Be Thou My Vision, and I've celebrated communion on a beach while weirded-out Californians tiptoed around me. I go to church now. I pray. My politics have not changed, but the fervency with which I live them out has. My husband is bemused by me, but supportive and loving. I'm occasionally asked by other Christians... So, Nicole, what happened during that hour? And I answer that God did not speak to me, but rather like the protagonist in Memento, putting his past together with Polaroids, I figured out what I already knew. What happened during that hour was the natural culmination of my coming to faith. I had been cracked open to the divine. I read books that I would have laughed at before the cracking. And the stars lined up, and there was God, and then I knew, and then I said it out loud to a third party, and then I giggled. No one could have, in a billion years of their gripping testimony, or by showing me a radiant life of good deeds, or through song, or even the most beautiful of books brought, to me, brought me to Christ. It couldn't have happened. I had to be tapped on the shoulder. I had to be taken to a place where books about God were something I could experience without distance. It was alchemical. I've been asked if deciding to become a Christian ended my exciting new crying multiple times a day hobby. 
The truth is that I continue to cry a lot more than I did either before Be With Me Gate or before the Dallas Willard incident. I'm more undone by love or kindness or friendship than I would have thought possible. Last night, I tried to explain who Henry Nowen was to some visiting cousins, and they had to bring me Kleenex, which they did sweetly and cautiously, as though I might melt in front of them. This morning, I read a piece in Texas Monthly that literally sank me to my knees at how broken this world is, and yet how stubbornly resilient and joyful we can be in the face of that brokenness. I never possessed much chill, to be honest, and now I have none whatsoever. There are times I feel a bit like a medieval peasant in that I believe wholly in God now but don't always do what he wants. Or like Scarlett O'Hara, I put hard conversations with him off until I've done the thing I wanted to do first. It's a thrumming backdrop to the rest of my life. My Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity. It's complicated all of my relationships. It's changed how I feel about money. It's messed up my public persona. And it's made me wonder if I should be on Twitter at all. But obviously, it's been beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that wherever your church is, that there would be your court of the Gentiles. Ah, the Lord, that you would make a place where anyone would feel safe in community here. Lord, that you would create such a gospel culture As you call people to yourself, Lord, call us all, I pray, in the name of the Lord. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. And lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. And so we